Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Once again, I promise we will go full Charlie Sykes on uh, today's uh, podcast, an edition of the Bulwark Podcast. And and our guest today is a returnee, although with a different role. Uh, I think uh, last time Olivier Knox was on the uh, the Bulwark Podcast, he was a host over at Sirius XM, and now he is the author of the Daily 202 Newsletter for the Washington Post. So welcome back, Olivier. Thanks very much, Charlie. So I, you know, I used to have, uh, I had conversations with James Homan, who was your, your predecessor putting out this newsletter. And, uh, I have to admit that, uh, that was one of the, one of the inspirations that I had for putting out my own daily newsletter, which is just like, what was I thinking? I mean, think, <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly to, you know, you and I were chatting about this, having to come up with a fresh original take every single day. It's like, that's, uh, you would think that with the news cycle being what it is, that that would be easy, but I don't know, trust me, it's, it is tough, isn't it? But well, ch- without challenging and interesting, without not, boasting, not, no. without boasting that I'm delivering a fresh original take every day. <laughs> Um, I will say, yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, the the, the news environment today um, offers fewer fewer handholds and footholds because a lot of it's very serious. There isn't the sort of shiny Twitter object that there was in the in the Trump era. Um, there's a lot of meaty stuff. I would I would never describe it as boring because the stakes are so enormously high in public policy and politics today. But yes, it's of, of course it's a challenge, and there are definitely days when I look across the news landscape, and you know the meatiest story is a, an in-the-weeds piece on healthcare. And I got to say, I'm, a, I'm kind of a generalist. I gravitate towards foreign policy. But if you're getting your health policy takes from me, um, well, you need an upgrade. Well, then there's also the the challenge of of uh, coming up with a take when all takes are taken these days. I mean, this, <laughs> we, we live in a world where through social media, whatever it is you were thinking of saying has already been said by somebody. I mean, there was a time when when I actually thought, you know, if I don't say this, it won't. This point will not be made. That is just not the case anymore. Somebody is going to make this this uh, th- this point. OK, so before we get into um, other things, I just want to get you your take on the burning controversy. Where do you come down on wearing masks outside? This has been the debate over social media. Great piece in the Atlantic saying, you know, guys, you don't really need to wear that mask when you're outside. It's pretty much all performative. So where do you come down on that? So when I'm, when I'm out walking in my neighborhood, I have a mask with me. I don't wear one. One of the challenges with the word, with the term outside is that in my neighborhood, at least, um, outdoor dining, outside dining, isn't doesn't actually meet the criteria of outside. Uh, we have restaurants that are enclosed on three sides, um, and one side is open. That is not outdoors. Uh, so in a setting like that, I would probably, just to put my fellow citizens at ease, would probably wear a mask whenever I could. Um, I'm now fully cooked. Um, yeah. as, of, uh, as of Sunday, I've had, I've had my two doses, and the time has lapsed, so I am vaccinated. Which means that my thank you means that my ability to spread this uh, nasty little bug is very much diminished. But you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm walking around um, uh, outside, I, I definitely have a mask with me. I don't. I probably don't wear it all that much. Even though I shouldn't say this, of course, on the podcast because Larry Hogan has maintained mm. his outdoor mask wearing mandate. So I'm I'm a scofflaw. But um, you know, outdoors, well ventilated. I'm not near other citizens. I'm not putting them at risk. If I thought there were any chance that I was putting um, uh, fellow citizens, citizens at risk, I would definitely wear the mask. 
See, this is the the, the, the question, though, because the, the science would indicate that if you are fully cooked, as as I am as well, we've had the, the vaccinations, we are, we're, we're immune, we ought to act like we're immune. I'm sorry to quote Ron DeSantis here, I'm going to hate myself for it. But um, we, we are pretty much immune. And when you're outside, the there's no evidence really that when you're just walking past anybody. But I have to admit that after a year of this, it's hard to make that mental switch. You know, my wife and I took a, a vacation, my post-vaccination vacation last week to visit the family. And for the first time in more than a year, I went into a restaurant. And I have to admit that even though I knew that we were both vaccinated, we knew that the risk was minimal, if any, it was still kind of a, you know, I kind of had to overcome that. So, Again, I, I don't. I don't think it's a bad thing that people wear the masks. I think that you know, if you're modeling good behavior, that's great. But you know, this is we're we, we're in the end game, though, aren't we now of the coronavirus? Yeah, I think we are. I think we are. I mean, you know, I don't. I don't want to jinx it, and we suddenly discover a variant that uh, that shoots right through the vaccine. But uh, but no, I think we are toward we are towards the end game. You know, I, I think that, uh, and and I'm married to a virologist, so I get I get oh. my up, I get my up to date information here. Um, but no, we are we are nearing the end game. I agree with you. There are some things where I feel very socialized over the past year. I, um, I, I went to the mall for the first time yesterday and wore a mask the entire time, not because I'm spreading it, but because again we're modeling good behavior, right? Um, and because it's it's a, it's the the governor's orders. Uh, but I, you know, no, I think I I don't think I will miss mask wearing. I think the stuff that's that's more problematic for me right now is, you know, in my, in my people greet each other uh, with kisses on the cheek. Um, I don't know how that's going to, I don't know whether that's going to survive this pandemic. Um, don't know about hugs and handshakes. I'm looking forward to, you know, physical contact with people who are not my, in my immediate family. Um, and um, I mean, yeah, I, I hope, I hope it's true. I hope that we are near the end of this thing. I mean, it's been an unbelievably horrible ride over the last, you know, year and a half. So let's stick with this. Um, two things uh, that I know that you've been writing about. Number one is uh, confronting vac- uh, vaccination hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy. And also you had your newsletter yesterday was uh, was was focused on the boom in fake vaccine passports. Now, I mean, I think those vaccine passports are, you know, can can play a significant role in raising public, um, you know, a sense of, of confidence. But Tell me a little bit about uh, what what you found out about counterfeit vaccine passports and why anyone would use them and how big a problem it is. It's a big enough problem, Charlie, that more than 40 attorneys general uh, in the United States wrote to some of the leading internet commerce CEOs and said, please crack down on this. Please track this data. Please uh, try to help us stop the sale of these fake um, uh, vaccination cards um, so it is. It, it's a. It, it's hard to put a number on it, but it is a significant enough problem that it's reached that level uh, of attention among law enforcement. What I think is really a couple of things that I think are very striking. The first is that um, people seem to be going through to more trouble to get this counterfeit card than they would to actually get the vaccine. Well, yes. Uh, like not since <laughs> not since eight not since eighteen year old Olivier Knox arrived in New York City and promptly headed to Times Square to get a fake ID. Has anyone put so much effort into something so unnecessary? Um, you can get the vaccine for no money. You can get the card for no money. So really, this is a product that appeals, uh, I think, mostly to people who are refusing to get the vaccine. That's the first thing I would say. 
So these are the people, these are the people who don't intend to get vaccinated, but want people to think that they are. Interesting. Right. Right. That's my, I mean, and again, I'm, 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 I'm speculating a little bit here. Um, I don't think it's the underserved communities that are having trouble getting a vaccine who are going online to, uh, to get a, a counterfeit card or, 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 or for that matter, a blank card that then they fill out. I don't think that's who's doing that. Well, this was something that was apparently not foreseen by the government uh, because they came up with a, with a format that was very, very easy to copy, very, very easy to, uh, to to counterfeit just these these little cardboard things. So was this something that they didn't think would happen or they didn't even think about what? I mean, well, my colleague. My colleague Dan Diamond did a lot of did yeah. a lot of digging into this and found that in fact initially they'd planned a digital version of this, mm-hmm. and it's not totally clear to me why they abandoned it. Although if you if you look at the reaction, some might say overreaction to the idea of digital vaccine passports, um, you can get a sense of why they might have been a little bit gun shy on this. You know, I mean there are. I don't mean to play this down. There are legitimate reasons to be a little leery of a digital vaccine passport. For a number, we can get into that if you'd like. Mm. But um, but it seems to me that they anticipated this being just the latest political front line in the coronavirus political wars. Um, the idea that you know people, a lot of people don't want to have, they don't want to share this kind of information with the state or federal government, and they don't want to have to um, prove that they've been vaccinated. So it looks to me. Like they planned, they planned to do a digital product for for a while, and then it fell apart, and they fell back on this extremely um, simple, low tech approach that unfortunately lends itself to the kind of counterfeiting that we're seeing. So, as of yesterday or today, um, all all adults in the country are eligible to get the vaccination. So we're a few weeks away from really everyone who wants to be vaccinated is going to be vaccinated and the people who are not vaccinated simply have chosen not to is that is that fair fair ish because um ish. it's people because it's people 16 or over yeah and some adults yeah so, so so not everybody but yes every everyone over 16 is is now it will is eligible and can now go get their shot so now we're we're we've moved from the stage of would there be enough supply and access to the question of can we do something about the people who are hesitant to take the vaccines? And by the way, the word hesitant, isn't that a euphemism? I yes. Mean, I, I wonder, who, do you know who ever came up with that? I'm vaccine uh-huh. hesitant. No, you're being I've, pig-headed. You're being an idiot. I mean, it's like <laughs> what? You know? What do you mean hesitant? I don't know. It, it you know? sounds like, a, it actually sounds like, a, it sounds like a very public health oh, um, yeah. term, you know, something that, something cooked up in a, uh, in what? a very well-intentioned scientific community kind of way. Yeah, there was there was a committee with a whiteboard that came up with hesitancy. <laughs> so, so how is the how what is the Biden administration planning to do? Is there anything you can do to really break down the the cultural, political, religious barriers that keep people from getting the vaccines? I think the evidence is that there is. Um, you remember yeah. when when vaccine hesitancy numbers among uh, Latinos and uh, African Americans were really high mm-hmm. in August of September of last year. Those numbers have dropped really, really significantly, and that that correlates one with, of course, Biden taking office, but also with um, an out, a fairly fairly aggressive outreach campaign by the by the state and federal governments to get these folks to agree to get vaccinated. Um, the bigger challenge at the moment, uh, Charlie, is diehard Trump voters who are saying that they will not get the vaccine. And the way that the administration has tried to to um, to reach those folks is through largely through uh, community faith leaders 
and local officials. They don't you, I'm sure you've seen the high profile, you know, former presidents getting the vaccine on camera, um, celebrities, either athletic or, or Hollywood getting the shot. That doesn't, that doesn't tend to, well, I'm going to say move the needle and I apologize. That's not going to, that doesn't really change much, but the, the local efforts are the ones that really reach people. Um, but still, but still what we were seeing is, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a white male who voted for Donald Trump, you are, um, in the most likely category to say that you are that you are not going to get this vaccine. So obviously, the big story this week, one way or another, and it's going to dominate. I just have a sense it's going to dominate. It's going to dominate uh, conversation and headlines for, uh, for for some time. Will be uh, the verdict from the Derek Chauvin case and any yeah. fa- fallout from that. And of course, uh, uh, you have a lot of uh, conservative media who are focusing on the comments by Maxine Waters, where she said, "We, you know, we want a guilty verdict. Uh, we're going to stay in the streets. So we have to be more confrontational." Um, which struck me as as imprudent and sort of the kind of thing that that uh, Maxine Waters does, but but also rather generic. You know, people calling for people to to protest rather generic. Again, I, I think given the tinderbox and given how fragile things are right now, everybody needs to be more circumspect, more careful uh, about their language. But it is interesting the way everyone from Marjorie Taylor Greene to Kevin McCarthy have just decided that, okay, now they are outraged about language that might incite violence. Well, sure. And and part of it is an effort to create a kind of uh, tornado of whataboutism, right? Well, you say we do this, yeah. but look at look look over there. I mean, you've got some people who are essentially sentient YouTube comment sections who are suddenly outraged about language. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it's it's hard it's hard not to be cynical. I will say your Tinderbox point's really important, though. I mean, the the not not in not in a very long time has the country been so focused on the outcome of one of one trial at this level in our judicial system. And I think it's going to, I think, I mean, I'm worried, I don't know about you, I'm worried about the results, of course. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of it is, is again, you're trying to, trying to create this, uh, you know, I know you are, but what am I kind of political dynamic? Um, Well, no, I mean, there is a certain level of cynicism here. I mean, you, you mentioned the tornado of whataboutism. There's no question about it that, that Republicans have seized on this as part of their their effort to memory hold January 6th to say, well, it wasn't that bad. You had Tucker Carlson saying that Maxine Waters was more dangerous than Donald Trump. You have the New York Post who's basically calling for, you know, impeach and removal of Maxine Waters, because if if what Trump did is bad, then we need to do the same thing. So all of that is, you know, flattens the experience uh, and, uh, and continues to engage in that historical revisionism. So we'll see what happens. I, you are right. I'm trying to think of the last time there was a case that that we knew in advance was going to be um, this. I mean, even the OJ verdict was, of course, uh, rather dramatic, but I don't think anybody anticipated that it was going to play out quite the way that it did. Um, we had the, you know, the LA riots and everything. But I guess part of it is that people have followed this trial so carefully and the evidence is so compelling, but people need to be reminded that uh, to convict someone, the burden is tough. Uh, you have to show intent, and that's the and that's the question. And all that defense attorney needs to do is find one or two ju- one juror who has a reasonable doubt, and we got a problem. So, um, uh, but it's it, you know it's you you you're this is playing out on a political cultural social uh le- legal plane and it's 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 hard to overstate what the stakes are here 
I, I agree. The thing I would add is, you know, we are we are relearning one of the lessons uh, of Rodney King, which is the difference that video footage makes in the way that the that the nation perceives something like this. I mean, it would be this would still be a dramatic and terrible case without the video footage of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck. But that video, you know, I I, I dare say um, a majority of Americans have seen it. It changes the way we perceive yes. what's going on in the courtroom very much. Um, and, and again, I go, you know, I'm, I'm, I, we are fellow old guys. And so I think back to the video of the, you know, the police uh, beating Rodney King. And I think, well, who, you know, same dynamic. That would have been a completely different legal process if the nation did not have at its ready disposal the, the video, you know, the, the moments in which this happened. Um, yeah. You know, because, because people feel that they saw, you know, in, in real time what happened. And, and of course they did. Well, let's not prejudge that particular case. So um, other things that are that are happening, you know, major stories, uh, we're, we are sort of back on Earth 2.0, where major stories are, in fact, major stories. While I was on vacation, uh, the president announced uh, plans to withdraw from Afghanistan. Uh, you're writing today about the questions that are still hanging over to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So what do you think? Um, you have you have the four questions for General McKenzie on yes, Afghanistan. Right. So what are they? What, what, what do we still need to know? What, what has been unanswered? Well, I think what we what we want is we want to get General McKenzie's perspective. He, he runs Central Command, which therefore will, will oversee the withdrawal from, from Afghanistan as laid out by President Biden. I think first and foremost, lawmakers are going to ask him point blank whether the withdrawal makes America less safe um, from the prospect of future terrorist attacks using Afghanistan as a springboard, um, you know, 9-11 being the obvious example. Um, that's in part because the CIA director, Bill Burns, testified last week um, that uh, that there was a significant significant risk, and that's those are his words. That ISIS and Al Qaeda would try to reconstitute in larger numbers inside Afghanistan, and he said that the withdrawal would necessarily reduce the resources that America has to track and neutralize those groups. So I think the first question would be to get uh, General McKenzie's general sense of how the military will compensate for not having boots on the ground. I think that's very important. My colleague, Missy Ryan, wrote a pretty good explainer on the kinds of things that they are looking at, um, but it's different when you hear directly from the head of Central Command. That's the first question I have. The second question is actually something that has nagged at me since close to right after 9-11, which it has to do with what do we expect to see from Pakistan? Um, this is a fragile nuclear-armed country with a very serious homegrown extremist problem. Um, it is, it's, it's the kind of thing that used to keep people up at night. We haven't heard about it um, in a, since I think Barack Obama was doing what was called AFPAC, kind of annoyingly in his White House. Um, so the question is, okay, the United States withdraw, withdraws. What happens to Pakistan and in Pakistan where they have, as I said, I have, they have their own homegrown extremism problem. Um, they've mostly used the last 20 years, they've mostly steered their extremists towards, uh, towards Afghanistan instead of dealing with it at home. So what happens there? Mm -hmm. um, a third one is, can frankly, can the government in Kabul and the Afghan security forces, military and police, withstand the Taliban? And this is a really big question because a lot of the democratic criticisms of Biden's withdrawal plan center on uh, what's going to happen to Afghan women and girls. Can yes. can they withhold? Can this the Afghan forces withstand this um, this rather effective fighting force that is the Taliban? 
Um, both the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, and his national security advisor have said, yes, we can hold our own as long as we continue to get Western funding and logistical help. But that's a really, really big question. I mean, just go look at look at what Democratic Senator Jean Shaheen said even before Biden formally announces withdrawal. She basically said it, it, it imperils the gains in Afghanistan, especially those related to the rights of women. So that's another one. And then I've got a throwaway as my fourth, which is what would you do different? What would you have done differently, General? It's a throwaway because it is very rare for um, generals, active duty generals, to break with the commander in chief rather than simply line up behind the decision, whatever their private misgivings were. But I know we're going to hear about that from some of the uh, some of the Afghanistan hawks on the House Armed Services Committee today. You know, it was rather striking when you had the CIA director, though, make the statement that he made last uh, la- last week. And were you surprised by that? I mean, you know, so far we've seen the the Biden administration present a pretty solid front on almost every issue, but that was a pretty dramatic. Uh, that was a pretty dramatic moment. It confirms for me that uh, Bill Burns is going to be someone to watch and listen to uh, over the course of the of the first Biden term. I think. I'm sure you remember, uh, Charlie, that when he was uh, doing his confirmation hearing, he actually leaned pretty far forward, farther forward than the Biden administration had on the risk posed by China. You know, he said he said that if he were basically if he were in charge, he would be um, uh, encouraging American institutions of higher education to break relations with the so-called Confucius centers that are basically influence uh, operations for Beijing. So he's been he's been pretty darn candid. Um, this year on on pretty big aspects of foreign policy, it was it was striking. Um, I mean, he did suggest you know the CIA will find ways to mitigate this, and so will the military. But it is striking. I don't expect anything less from from Bill Burns, who after all is a a very highly regarded career diplomat. Um, not really one. He's, he, he can be diplomatic, but he doesn't necessarily mince words. Uh, but again, I think it's going to be interesting to watch him on all manner of foreign policy because now on two occasions, two of the biggest foreign policy dossiers that Biden faces, the, 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 the confrontation with China and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, he's spoken up. He's spoken his mind. Let's talk about some of the other challenges of the Biden administration. So because uh, my excuse is that I was on vacation last week, but I'm really, really confused about what the policy is on refugees and whether or not there's a crisis at the border or not. Well, you're not alone. It seems like the Biden, the Biden administration is confused about the Biden administration's policy on refugees. Yeah, you saw kind of a strange- uh, It was strange. It was really strange. I mean, they, yeah. the, Joe Biden campaigned on raising the cap on refugees well beyond where it was in the Trump era. He took office and promised he would be raising the cap. Every couple of weeks, uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, would get asked in the briefing room about the, these promises to raise the caps. And then on Friday, we had this weird tango where we had, uh, well, actually, we're going to keep the caps where they were. Uh, cue progressive outrage, predictable. Yeah progressive outrage. And then they backtrack. And now, honestly, I mean, I, I want to watch the briefing today to see if they lend, lend any clarity to this. Um, we're still in sort of this strange holding pattern where Biden says he wants to raise the refugee cap, but hasn't signed the order. Um, he has fallen back on blaming the Trump administration and saying, well, you know, we wanted to raise the cap, but we inherited this broken immigration process. Okay, maybe, but it's not like the damage to the immigration process was unknown in November of 2020. Um, so yeah, so we're in a bit of a holding pattern on that in terms of the, in terms of the border. I well, mean, hold on, before we get on the refugees, yeah. how, how, how could they be confused about this? This did seem to be one of the clearest issues. It, it, it doesn't come as a surprise. It's not, it's not like an event 
that uh, that was not foreseeable. Uh, they said that they were ready from 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 day one, and and yet somehow they've they've fumbled this. Why? Do you have any sense about why the administration got queasy about raising the refugee? Are, were they concerned about the optics of of the border? Did they think that it would blow back on them? Uh, why, why, why did they walk it? Why did they back off? And there's obviously a queasiness within the white house, about doing something that everybody expected they were going to do anyway. Sure. I think what I would, uh, what I would say, Charlie is that, and this is, this is kind of the, the dime store analysis from me, but, um, the border to me increase border and immigration more broadly to me increasingly feels like the Biden administration's closed Guantanamo Bay situation yeah, yeah, yeah. where they have a they have a they have this statement of principle uh, it is tinged with a kind of uh, self-righteousness about it and then it runs headlong into the political reality um, inside the beltway and I think I think that they were concerned about the blowback I mean they've been pretty um, they've been pretty sharp on a couple of issues you know the they they ca- they initially categorically refused to send vaccines to Canada and Mexico. Um, this is a little bit in the weeds, Charlie. So so bear with me. But no. before before Justin Trudeau met virtually with President Biden, um, Jen Psaki was asked, you know, okay, well he you know Trudeau's coming with a request for vaccines. Are you going to accommodate that? And Jen said no, bluntly. Now normally what you would get is let's let the let's let the meeting take place. I'm not going to prejudge the president. And she just shut it down. She did the same thing with the president of Mexico when the president of Mexico came to visit. So they've been pretty sharp um, and 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 uh, sharp, but not fuzzy and cuddly on a number of issues. This is one where I think a little bit like the let's close Gitmo, they come into office with a with what they regard as a very principled stance, and they run headlong into some of the realities of the politics. They are mindful of poll numbers showing that um, Biden is popular on the economy. He gets high marks on the pandemic. And uh, the handling of the border is much lower in public opinion polls. So they do see it as a vulnerability. You know from watching Republican politics that Republicans definitely see it as a Biden oh, yeah. vulnerability. Well, let's talk um, about then the, the border. So they the, was it a crisis or not a crisis? Uh, Biden says it's a crisis. It's the same thing. Cue some of the outrage, pushback. They back off. Yeah. I mean, Biden, Biden also called it a surge back when the White House was insisting it wasn't. Biden's calling it a crisis when the White House is insisting it isn't. You know, I, I, I tend to think that if, um, if your facilities are overflowing with migrant children, then, I, then the term crisis applies. I don't think, yeah. I mean, we, you know, how many, we can, we can sort of have this, you know, linguistic argument, but I think that to the degree that these facilities are, are, are overwhelmed, um, and and migrants, especially migrant children, are being held in unsanitary conditions. I think we can call it a crisis. I don't think I don't think there's anything partisan about 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 saying that. Um, we are seeing you know record numbers of of unaccompanied children uh, trying to make their way to uh, to the United States. That in itself, I wouldn't call a crisis. But the fact that we're not equipped to manage the flows of people trying to cross the border, I think that qualifies as a crisis. Yeah, I think it does qualify as a crisis. And you know what's interesting about it is is that Biden has kind of pride, uh, prided himself on blunt, honest talk when it comes to the COVID, you know, the the coronavirus, and which which I appreciate. It's like, hey, you know, we're we're making progress. We're not there yet. Um, I'm going to tell you some hard truths about it. And yet he sort of created his own issue by the refusal to call an obvious crisis a crisis. It's not working. Here's another question, and I I hate to pick up on what has become now a right-wing talking point, but it's becoming a much louder talking point. Kamala Harris 
was supposed to be in charge of the border crisis, the whole issue, right? And yet she has gone nowhere near the border. What's that? What's happening there? And why have they decided that they are they are they so allergic to the optics of the vice president being on the border? Are they afraid that that would feed the narrative that in fact something is big happening there? Ooh, ooh! I get an opening to bash the mainstream media, please. Um, uh, so Kamala Harris was never in charge of the border. She was. If you okay. go back to the if you go back to the announcement that Joe Biden made, he very clearly said that what she'd be in charge of was the diplomatic outreach to okay. Mexico and to the so-called Northern Triangle <laughs> countries. Um, it turned into shorthand for the border um, in, in the media accounts. But if you go back and look at what he actually announced, she's not in charge of the border. She's in charge of this diplomatic portion of it. So now that doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily blunt the point that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have not visited the border. They've not gone to get a firsthand look at the situation there. You could still make, you could still, of course, make that argument. But they were pretty careful about not entrusting the overall border issue to her as opposed to the diplomatic outreach, um, which, by the way, is now mired in its own sort of controversies because of that Biden administration proposal to make direct payments to folks in places like Honduras and Guatemala to keep them, um, keep them home. Yeah, well, uh, you know, thanks for the clarification there. But shouldn't she be then in Guatemala or Honduras? Yes, I mean, this is this is she's in charge, right? So she's done a couple of virtual diplomatic meetings on this issue. But yeah, right. I mean, we 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 have seen senior administration officials go down to those countries, go to Mexico, go to Honduras, go to Guatemala, um, but not but not her. Now she, I think, is expected to make a trip um, relatively soon to. Uh, to the region. What her folks are saying, though, is that she only wants to travel down there when um, she can either make, she can either sign some kind of agreement or um, okay. break through some kind of a logjam. In other words, in in the jargon of DC, she will she will only travel there when there are real deliverables. If you sure, will. she wants to, she wants to be the closer. Okay, so let's switch gears here. Um, I, I don't know. Do, do you know? Did you know? Or do you know John Boehner very well? Do you have any relationship with him? I've never um, I mean, I covered I covered Congress. Uh, I, that was actually my first reporting assignment. I went to Congress in January of 1998, um, which of oh. course was a kind of a momentous time to go cover Congress. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I know, I know, I you know, I wouldn't say I know John Boehner. I mean, to the degree that we ever know these folks, but yeah, I covered I covered John Boehner for a while. He was um, he was great in the 1998 budget talks. Um, because he was forever leaving Newt Gingrich's office to get a cigarette, and <laughs> and he would stop on his way in or out to talk to the five or six of us who uh, who were so lucky as to spend our weekends waiting outside of Gingrich's office. So yeah, I know him a little bit. So what do you make of of the book? I I have I have downloaded the book. I have the book. Uh, I was going to start on it a couple of days ago, and then I then of course I open up Twitter where you know all wisdom you know from which all wisdom flows. <laughs> and, and and see that he's sitting there on CNN going, yeah, I I'd, I'd support, uh, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with you know Trump being you know the nominee in twenty twenty four. I'm obviously now um, unfairly paraphrasing him, but it was like, what the hell, man? I mean, really, it's I, his, the whole book seems to be how the the you know the crazies took over the party, you know the 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 jerks, the Ted Cruz's, the you know the con men, you know, and he breaks so bad on Donald Trump and what a disaster it was, so. What is the point of writing it if 
you're basically saying, yeah, but I'm still an establishment. Well, maybe that is the point. I'm still an establishment Republican that's learned that, you know, being an establishment Republican needs that I will, if I have to, I will eat any shit sandwich that's served to me. Yeah, I'm I'm a little puzzled as well because he has done the sort of insult comic route before. Yeah, right. He is he's this is not the first time he's called Jim Jordan and others legislative terrorists. He did it back in mm-hmm. back in 2017. He did it shortly after being uh, essentially hounded to the exits in 2015. So he's done a lot of this shtick before. Um, one of my columns was basically a list of like, four questions about the book because I, I don't have mm-hmm. my grubby little mitts on the book yet. The one thing I really wanted to read about was. Um, what John Boehner said about Newt Gingrich's role in bringing about the kind of smash mouth politics that we have today, you know, the, the bomb throwing backbencher, um, style of politics, you know, Newt Gingrich was one of the first to realize the potential of the C-SPAN cameras in the house chamber. Um, and, and you see the style now, but at least Gingrich brought some policy to the table as well. What you're seeing now is less, much less of the policy and much more of the, you know, I'm drafting my incendiary statement in the back of the town car on the way to you know, a, a cable TV hit. So I want, I would, I'd hoped that he would discuss uh, Gingrich's contributions to the current moment. Apparently he does not, which is, I think, a missed opportunity. I'm not really sure what he's doing except for, you know, um, settling some old scores, making some money. Um, and, and I think some of the interviews have been really interesting. You know, he voted for Donald Trump in 2020. I didn't expect yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd be fine with Donald Trump being the nominee again. I didn't expect that. Um, he says, oh yeah, you know, uh, I would totally, I totally would have done immigration reform. Well, the record contradicts him on that. Um, he did, yeah, well, he, he very forcefully declined to bring one to the vote, to, to, to the floor. So I'm not exactly sure what, uh, what, what, what John Boehner is doing. And also the, the other thing I'd like to know is I would love to understand his evolution on marijuana. Oh yeah. I think, well, you know, maybe he tried it. I mean, look. I mean, no. I mean, if 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 you're if you're if you smoke as much as he does, if you drink as much Merlot as he does, sooner or later you're going to get to pot, right? I mean, it's like it just seems sort of natural to me. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was that he's all out of bleeps to give in in life, which made that comment sort of surprising because you know if you've got nothing, you know, basically he's got nothing to lose anymore. He's not no, no he has no political future. So if he's willing to say, you know, f you, you know, Ted Cruz, if he's willing to, you know, call out all the people who are the the legislative terrorists um why not sort of let it go and say this is what we need to do but i guess part of it is that he is kind of become the nowhere man where he's not willing to engage in the personal introspection of this is what i should have done and i failed to do i mean there is that sort of that sense that if only somebody would have stepped in and done something about it you were the freaking speaker of the house of representatives and even confronting every single thing, which he knows as well as anyone in Washington, how bad things are to essentially say, yeah, but I'd go along with it again. It's like, okay, what's the point? What is your point, John Boehner? <laughs> right. There's a, I, for everyone listening, there's a, there's a stupendous uh, John Boehner profile by Tim Alberta in mm-hmm. Politico magazine from 2017 that I think covers a lot of the ground that, that this book does or, or should have. Um, and it is about some of the introspection and it's about how, you know, even though we're all like watching him, you know, tweet photos from his RV or having a glass of, or two of Merlot, that he's actually uneasy in retirement. Um, that the, the, our, the, our collective perception of him, quote unquote, living his best life in retirement is not correct. And that he still has some, some, uh, some ghosts to exercise. Um, you know, I, I, as I said, I have not read the book, but one of, one of my friends who has, um, 
said that the most striking thing about the book is the total absence of Devin Nunes. Oh, really? Why would that be, do you think? Well, I don't know, because Nunes was tight in the in the Boehner inner circle, you know? And Boehner is the one, uh, maybe, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, Boehner, I believe, is the one who put Nunes on House Intelligence. Um, and, and Nunes was a loyalist, was a Boehner loyalist. So I'm kind of intrigued. Uh, I find that a lot more interesting than the latest rehash of how much John Boehner hates Ted Cruz. So- in terms of the Republican Party, and 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 if, if if John Boehner is kind of a representative of the inability of the Republican Party to move past Trump, how surprising is it, do you think, that Donald Trump's hold on the party is as strong as it is after his defeat, after losing the Senate, after the cataclysm of January 6th? Because I have to say that I, I've taken a very dark and cynical view of this. But I still find it remarkable. I still find it amazing that the Republican Party remains in so much enthrall to the point where they are willing to actually scuttle a bipartisan January 6th commission to find out what happened. I think one of the answers to this, Charlie, is what's the alternative? Who's where? Where are the other centers of gravity in the party? Uh, there's no, there's no Kevin McCarthy wing of the Republican Party. I'm no. sorry, there just there just is not. Um, there is not, um, you know, there's not like a, there's not really a, a. I mean, I guess this is arguable, but I don't think there's a, you know, uh, a, a phalanx of Republicans who want to bring back George W. Bushism. So I, it's a little one of the one of the one of the reasons that I think he's held a hold on the party is that there aren't a ton of alternatives. And a lot of the issues that animated Trumpism are still with us. And so, you know, as long as the dynamics that created Trumpism are still here, and as long as there's not an alternative, where are Republicans going to go? Okay, but, um, but in the days after January 6th, there, it did seem that there was a pushback. You even had Mitch McConnell giving the speech that he gave. You have Liz Cheney still out there saying that he should have no role. And yet what happens is it appears even Nikki Haley talking to Tim Alberta, said that they would never make that mistake again. They would never go down that road again. And yet they they back off very quickly, which raises the, I guess, alternative history. What if everybody would have stuck with where they were on January 7th? What if, you, you, you're right that there's no center of gravity that is, that's an alternative, but that's in part because of choice, because all of those voices backed off. I mean, you have seven United States senators, Republican senators that voted to remove him. I mean, to uh, to convict him in the impeachment. You you had, uh, you know, 10 uh, House members who did it. So, I mean, the, there's at least that that core of people who, if they would have stuck to their guns, if they would have been outspoken, if they would have planted the flag, would things possibly have been different? It's a great question, and I don't, I don't really know how to work on the counterfactual there. Um, no. I would say, you know, Nikki Haley did come out and say that, and then, and then, you know, not that long ago, I think it was last week, she was asked about twenty twenty four, and she said, you know, oh yeah, you know, if he runs again, I'll stand aside. Oh my god. Um, yeah. So uh, I think you may have been on vacation with that one, but so yeah, so so there's, I you saw know, some. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, um, but yeah, so you know, that's one of the dynamics. The other thing that I think is very interesting has to do with the the cash flow into the Republican Party, which is now. Heavily powered by small donations, uh, well, it's heavily powered. Actually, it, it, it's a it's a it's a it's basically an inverted bell curve where you've got a lot of small donations and a lot of very big donations, and the traditional donors, the traditional corporate America donors, are in a bit of a trough, and so that creates, you know, that creates a dynamic where the the party leaders are more inclined 
to to uh, to cater to the small donors, to the people who are who are um, you know were Trump voters, and to cater to these billionaires who fund super PACs. And in both instances, I think you see uh, a dynamic that reinforces Trumpism inside the GOP. No, I think that's absolutely true. So what do you make of this uh, GOP war with corporate America right now? Because, I mean, obviously, there's some real passion. There's a real culture war issue. But I can't imagine a single member of the Republican House or the Senate voting to raise corporate taxes, for example. Right. What you're you're seeing is – but you are seeing – at least tentative efforts to strip Major League Baseball of its uh, antitrust protection, right? Antitrust exemption. So I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I mean, just for your listeners' sake, I mean, I'm old enough to remember back in 2017 when uh, conservatives got very hot under the collar about a performance of William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, in which the uh, the director dressed uh, Caesar up to look like Donald Trump. Of course, there's the climactic assassination <laughs> scene, yeah, and good. conservatives got very do you remember? Do you remember the two major corporate donors that backed off, that withdrew their funding from the from that Shakespeare production? No, because because one of them is really relevant to today. One of them is Delta Airlines. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm a I'm a little bit skeptical of the um, of the breakup. Um, I think that um, that corporate America still counts on Republicans to deregulate or resist new regulation. I think corporate America still relies mostly on Republicans to avoid uh, corporate tax increases. I say mostly because of course if you're if you if you were a major corporate player in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you could also count on uh, Democrats to help you out. It, say hypothetically if you were a credit card company or a bank and you incorporated yourself in a very small northeastern state, uh, caught between, say, Maryland and New Jersey, um, Delaware, of course, is what I'm referring to. Um, you could still count on some on some Democrats siding with you too. I, I, I do see the Chamber of Commerce appears to have alienated a lot of yeah. Republicans. Um, I think there is. My colleague Jeff Stein wrote a really intelligent and interesting piece last year about the way the pandemic had changed American attitudes towards government, where they want they want more. From government, they want gov- government to come to their help, come to their aid in a way that they didn't necessarily used to. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical of this breakup. I want to see, you know, what the next couple donor cycles look like, and I want to no, see whether yeah. Republicans do melt away in the corporate tax fight. I don't think they will. No, I think that that's that's uh, it is going to be. It will be interesting, but but I think I was actually trying to look it up for a moment. I wasn't able to find it. Um, your your paper had an interesting point, though that the Republican demonization of corporate America does create kind of an interesting political moment for the Democrats who are trying to raise corporate taxes. It seems like five minutes ago, you know, corporate America, they were the quote unquote job creators. They were the engine behind American prosperity. And now that's not a talking point. There's not a sense. So, so when the Democrats do get around to, if they do, raising corporate taxes, the political environment will feel very different. I think that's right. I, I also think that I mean you're seeing enough resistance in the Demo- among the Senate Democrats to raising the corporate yeah, tax yeah. to 28 percent that that right. you don't you don't you don't need the Republicans to all hold the line on this. Right. I think 
Joe Manchin's going to do at least as much of the heavy lifting as anyone on the GOP side of this. Yeah, exactly. Olivier Knox, thank you so much for coming back on the Bulwark podcast. You can read Olivier's work on the Daily 202 newsletter at the Washington Post. I strongly recommend it. It is one of the things that I read religiously every single day. So, Olivier, thanks for coming back. My pleasure, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.